Good morning, church. So good to be with you again. Uh, This week, I was reminded again that a scared world needs a a fearless church. Um, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday um, for dinner. uh, We ordered some tacos from a nearby nearby restaurant, and uh, I went to go pick it up only to realize as I walked in that this restaurant that seats maybe 25 people or so was packed out with people who were just standing around waiting for their order. And uh, uh, it it quickly dawned on me that the restaurant hadn't gotten my order and so I was going to be there for a bit. And what I realized is as people just kept filing in and the workers are frantically trying to get get, get the orders right, they're, 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 they're kind of descended in this room, just this awkward and just kind of a, 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 a fearful, was a word I would use, presence. You could tell that, that people were feeling incredibly uncomfortable and uneasy, trying to, you know, make sure that they were trying to social distance even when they, when they couldn't. And, 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 and this, this air of fear, this air of discomfort just lingered the whole time. And, I re- and it reminded me that, that in this season that we're in, in this season of pandemic, the only thing that might be more contagious than this virus is fear. There, there is this um, uh, passage in Scripture that if you were to just kind of read it in the Old Testament, that you just kind of pass right by it. You, you, don't, you wouldn't even recognize it. It's Deuteronomy chapter 20. Now God is here giving Israelites instructions about going to war. And this is what he says. He says, then the officers shall add, verse 8, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his soldiers will not become disheartened too. That's just... That's just powerful truth. God is literally saying, instruct the soldiers that if they're afraid, if when they face challenges, they're tempted to give up, when they find things that are challenging, and if they're tempted to be afraid, God says literally, send them home because of their impact on the other soldiers. Fear is incredibly contagious. But you know, I have some incredibly good news. Do you know what else is contagious? Hope is contagious. Love is contagious. Radical generosity is contagious. We know that the early church grew like wildfire. It was contagious because in the face of some incredible opposition and difficulties, the followers of Jesus live lives of radical faith, radical generosity, radical love, and hope. And they caught like wildfire. See, the truth that you and I maybe come, need to come around with this morning is this truth. We're all carriers. We're all carriers. We're all carriers. When people get near you and me, they're going to catch something. The question is, what is it that we're carrying? What are we carrying? Is it faith? Is it hope? Is it love? Or is it fear? Uh, We're we're in this series on um, 
redeeming the times. And, and I was talking to a couple people this week, and, and I told them this. I said, I said, this might sound maybe overly dramatic, but I said, I think there are parts of the American church that will, that will die. And here's what I meant by that. There are churches in America that have centered their entire discipleship around the Sunday event. Entire discipleship around offering programs to meet the never-ending wants of consumer Christians. But they never disciple their people to follow Jesus on their own. Those churches will struggle. See, I'm convinced that in this in this culture that we live in, I've, I've been warning the signs or warning, sounding the alarm about secondhand spirituality for years. What is secondhand spirituality? Secondhand spirituality is when you completely depend on other people and other things to feed you and to grow you. And you never take ownership of your spiritual life. See, some of you will actually grow during this season. I, I, I am firmly believing that. You're like that tree planted by the waters in Psalm 1. Your roots are going deep in the season of hardship and suffering. And you're praying, you're growing. This season will cause you to grow. But there's others of us that will struggle. Why? Because we never took ownership of our spiritual lives. See, we can't gather on Sundays, but you could still read the Word. See, we can't gather in our life groups and microgroups physically that give life to us, but you can still fast and pray. I think we're going to find out soon in this season if our faith was built on solid rock or sinking sand. That's why we're talking about redeeming the times and what this might mean. Oh, we're looking at the book of Habakkuk because the book of Habakkuk is a perfect book that I think illustrates for us what it means to follow Jesus during hard, challenging times. The unique thing about Habakkuk is, I mentioned this last week when we launched this, most prophets spoke to the people for God. Habakkuk speaks to God for the people. It's a very personal book, a dialogue between a prophet and his God. The context, as I mentioned last week, is a time in which the nation of Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, is in its final days. Soon they're going to be leveled by Babylon and be exiled. We'll come around to that. But under a corrupt king, the nation is in complete disarray spiritually, economically. There's starvation level societally. Things are just falling apart. There's evil, injustice, corruption, devastation, hardship everywhere. In the midst of this, the prophet is asking, God, where are you in this? God, how long must we look at this? He's asking some profound, deep questions that you and I might be asking today. What does it mean to live by faith when we're losing our jobs? What does it mean to live by faith when our house is foreclosing, where our marriage is crumbling, our loved ones are sick and dying? Well, what, is it, what does it mean to live by faith when we see so much evil and injustice? Have mercy, Lord, in our world. What does it seem when God seems silent? What does it mean to live by faith? So we're, we're going to jump into Habakkuk. And, and, and we're starting, last week I did an overview. We're going to spend most of our time in parts of chapter 1 today. So chapter 1, verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice, God? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? 
Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife, conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. I can't think of more profound, relevant words than these words. This is a lament. This is a prayer of lament. And the Bible is full, by the way, of these words where God's people are crying out to him in moments of doubt and despair. We're reading the book of Psalms together as a church. Are you, are you doing it? I hope you're doing it. It's a profound book. It's a hymnal in the scriptures. Please join in and follow along. But Psalms, if you know anything about them, 40% of the Psalms are what? Are laments. 40% is a huge part of scripture. Understanding lament is not only vital to understanding the book of Habakkuk, but also the book of Psalms and all of scripture. Understanding lament also is the key to living a vital faith in times like we're in right now. I would even argue that lament and understanding lament is directly tied to the work of justice. Three questions today I want to ask about lament. One, why lament? Why lament? Why is this important? Well, let's start here. The mystery of the biblical story is that our God is a God who laments. See, Christians like to sometimes think of God as being above all that, knowing everything, in charge of everything, calm and unaffected by the troubles of this world. But that's not the picture of the Bible, is it? We see God who is grieved. The Bible usually literally says grieved over the wickedness of his prized creation. We see God who is devastated, devastated by the unfaithfulness and the adultery of his bride, the nation of Israel. And even Jesus, John 11, while knowing that his friend Lazarus was going to rise again, we see Jesus mourning and grieving. And not just that sin, what sin has done. The Son of God grieves and mourns the brokenness, the devastation, the destruction of God's world. And, not, and of course, Paul also says that the Holy Spirit, what? Groans within us as we ourselves groan within the pain of the whole creation. So church, it's striking that one of the spiritual practices or disciplines that's completely lost in the Western church that's, I think, led to some malformation in discipleship, is the loss of lament. A, a friend of mine who's a professor in North Park, Sung Chan Ra, wrote a commentary called Prophetic Lament. It's literally commentary on the book of Lamentations. And he argues that the reason why the Western church avoids lament is because we have a strong leaning towards what he calls triumphalism. Triumphalism that moves towards problem solving and fixing everything. But what happens when you can't fix it? What happens when you can't problem solve it? You know, like a global pandemic. See, triumphalistic Christianity doesn't know what to do when a global pandemic hits the world, does it? See, triumphalistic Christianity doesn't want to take the time 
to think about and grieve and mourn the suffering and the brokenness and the injustice of our world. Triumphalistic Christianity wants to jump right into celebration and victory. This is why American church loves feel-good sermons and how-to sermons. How to fix your marriage in four easy steps. But when you don't know how to lament, listen, you're missing a part of God. Lament reminds us of a God who is able to do way more than we have allowed him to do because we have only seen God in our celebration and victories. See, lament reminds us that God is present not only in the triumph of our day-to-day, but also in the sufferings of our day-to-day. Lament reminds us that our God is present in all situations and circumstances of life. Lament reminds us that even in the darkest, most difficult moments in our lives, our God is still there. Lament reminds us that at the center of our faith is a suffering Savior church who chooses, who chooses to enter into our world of pain, suffering, and injustice so that someday he could end all evil, pain, injustice, and suffering without ending us. We miss that part of God when we just focus on celebration and victory. Lament not only teaches us the bigger picture of God, but it also teaches us what I will call the spirituality of the margins and not the spirituality of the center. You see, the context of Lamentations is that it happens right after the fall of Jerusalem, which, by the way, God prophesies in Habakkuk verses 5 to 11. So this book is very relevant. And what happens is the Babylonians, just like God says, will eventually come and and level Judah, level Israel, and take back in exile all the able-bodied men, leaders, educated, the priests. And the only people left in Jerusalem were the women, the children, the elderly, the lame, the blind, the poor, the outcasts, the marginalized. And yet, church, check this out. Those are the voices that emerge in the book of Lamentations. And there's some question as to who wrote the book of Lamentations. And most scholars would say it was Jeremiah. And the reason is because he was one of the few who was left in Jerusalem that could read and write. But the reason why people even ask that question is because the type type of writing in Lamentations is radically different from the book of Jeremiah. It's kind of like Shakespeare and Tupac. I I just, I know I just dated myself. Shakespeare, two great poets, right? But incredibly different ways and styles of poetry. So some people have said there's no way that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations because the styles are so different. But here's what's happening. Jeremiah goes into the city square and he hears the voices of the suffering. He hears the voices of the ones who suffer the most, especially the voices of women. All the women out there, can I get an amen? Lamentations, did you know, is the most feminine book in all of Scripture more than Ruth and Esther. The voices of women emerge. 
See, what Jeremiah does is instead of hearing and speaking the voices of the privileged, he is speaking and hearing the voices of the marginalized. Church, as the pandemic just widens the gulf between the haves and the have-nots, here's a question for us. How well are you hearing the voices of the marginalized? How well are we hearing the voices, the cries of those who are marginalized in our society? See, how do you and I work for justice when we fail to hear the voices and the cries of the hurting, the marginalized among us? And let me be clear, not the voices of the privileged who speak for the marginalized, okay? But the actual voices of the marginalized, actual voices of the suffering. I've said this for years. The voiceless don't need people to speak on their behalf. The voiceless just need a platform to speak the voices that they already have. Why lament? Because lament challenges us to say, maybe we don't have all the answers. Maybe I don't know everything there is to know about God. There's tremendous humility and lament. See, I need the stories of others unlike me. That's why I need the stories of the African slaves and the spirituals that were sung. I need the stories of underground pastors in China who know about suffering and hardship. I need the stories of Palestinian Christians in Gaza. I need their stories because that's a part of God that I don't know. This is about discipleship because you and I are being discipled in the faith by those who have radically different stories, radically different experiences, and we learn that God reveals himself not just in celebrations, but also in suffering and in hardship. So then secondly, what is lament? Here's my definition. So it's a working definition, so it may change here and there throughout the book of Habakkuk, okay? Lament is an expression of deep pain and sorrow. In other words, it's a vulnerable and honest crying out to God about our pain and about our sorrow. And by the way, if, in order to do that, in order to express our pain and sorrow, you need to pay attention, hello somebody, to your pain and sorrow. Emotional health. How do you express pain and sorrow if you don't take time to grieve and mourn? Over not just our personal sins, but the brokenness of the world, and this is key. All the while trusting in God's promises and surrendering to his will in the moments when it's often the hardest to do. All the while trusting in God's promises and surrendering to his will in the moments when it's often the hardest to do. Laments are passionate and they're messy, but they always circle back to our faith in him. And we see all the elements of lament in Habakkuk. The first notice the expression of deep pain and sorrow about what he sees. In the verses we read earlier, Habakkuk is vulnerable and he's honest as he cries out to God about his anger, about his confusion, and about his despair. How long, God, do you want me to look out at injustice? Anybody feeling that this morning? God, where, where are you? Where, why, why are you allowing this to happen? Habakkuk doesn't hold back. He challenges, he confronts, and even accuses God. Can I ask you a question this morning, church? What might be causing you to question God this morning? Maybe it's the unjust killing of Ahmad Arbery. Another black 
man killed. Maybe it's, it's, it's an unjust killing of another innocent that's asking, God, how long, how long are you going to allow racism and injustice to wreak havoc on innocent people? Where, where are you, God? And maybe, maybe you're going through an intensely personal situation. God, how long are you going to remain silent, God? But I'm so afraid of the future. When I know if I could put food on the table, God, how long are you remain silent through this prolonged season of singleness, God? How long, Lord? How long? And in response to Habakkuk's question, God responds in verses 5 to 11. And we're not going to look at that today. I briefly looked at that last week. But essentially in 5 to 11, this is what God says. God, God says to Habakkuk, I am going to do something, Habakkuk. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Babylon, a nation even more unjust, more evil, and more idolatrous than Israel to bring about Israel's salvation. They're going to take you into exile. And that's what I'm going to do. In response to God's answer, Habakkuk launches his second complaint. Verse 12, Lord, are you not from everlasting? Are you not from everlasting? Everlasting literally means eternal or infinite. Now, church, listen to this. Most scholars say that, that, that there's no other, no other sort of passage or verse like this anywhere in the Bible. Do you know, here's the reason why. Because you can't really see the confrontational nature in English. But in Hebrew, he's asking a rhetorical question. You're not looking for information. What is he saying? He's saying, God, I thought you were supposed to be this infinite, this eternal, this wise God. But are you? Are you? I'm looking at what's going on. Are you? Most of the 96 occurrences of this word in the Bible are vigorous human arguments. God is not being approached with any courtesy and certainly not respect. Listen, if you are not familiar with lament, and most of us are not if you grew up in the American church, listen, a, a book that's been helpful is a book called Praying Life by Paul Miller. He says, we think laments are disrespectful. God says the opposite. Lamenting shows that you're engaged with God in a vibrant, living faith. You see, we live in a deeply broken world. And if the pieces of our world aren't breaking your heart and you're not in God's face about them, then you've thrown in the towel. See, some of us grew up in church environments where we were taught that questioning God, being angry, and confused and depressed with a sign of lack of faith or, or lack of spiritual maturity. Or some of us, we grew up in Christian subculture where nobody admitted or acknowledged the dark and difficult realities of our lives and the world around us. People just walked around projecting an image that everything's good, I'm not struggling with anything, no fear, no doubt, no struggles here. And the result, though, is a weak and anemic faith that dies in times of trouble. Psalm 13 is one of my favorite psalms. It's a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of David where he says what? God, how long will you forsake me? Answer me! 
Answer me, he says. That is a man after God's own heart. That's somebody that the scripture, and I think he's the only one that God said about this. He's a man after own heart, my own heart. And yet David is in a season of his life where he's saying, right now, I feel forsaken. I feel utterly forsaken. I know I'm not forsaken, but right now, I feel utterly forsaken. I know he's for me. I know he loves me, but I feel stuck right now. See, sign of spiritual maturity in health, church, vital living faith, is paying attention to what you're feeling, paying attention to what you're feeling, and expressing it, being in God's face about it. That's spiritual maturity. That's raw, honest, real faith. See, I don't know what you're going through or what losses you've experienced, but if you're bought into the lie that says that you can't struggle, you can't doubt, you can't question. Please hear me. Faith isn't about never struggling, never doubting, never questioning. Faith is trusting God with our struggles, with our doubts, with our confusion. Faith is going to God in our struggles, in our doubts, in our confusion, and trusting in his promises and submitting to his will even when we find it difficult to do it. Laments are passionate and messy, but they always circle back to God. They circle back to our faith in God. What Habakkuk does right here, verse 12. Because after he says, after he says, are you not from everlasting? What's the very next verse? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. My God, my Holy One. In other words, not some generic God of everybody. My God, you are my God. You are my Holy One. It's personal. It's intimate. Habakkuk is reminding himself in the midst of anger, despair, and confusion that his God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A God of covenant love who is fully committed to him and will remain faithful even when we're faithless church the 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 most astounding thing and yet easily missed about this whole book is check this out the whole time that habakkuk is angry confused and despair the whole time he never stops talking to god did you hear what i said he never stops talking to God. He's engaged with God in prayer. When troubles and hardship comes, the temptation is to run from God and not run to God. The temptation, listen, is to stop doing what you're supposed to do. Is to stop praying, stop reading scripture. The temptation is to choose escape routes of scrolling endlessly through our social media, binge watching Netflix or whatever it is to do. But I'm telling you, those are dead ends that will mask our pain and never heal it. If you are struggling right now, confused, angry, in despair, run to him. Run to him. Bring your doubts. Bring your confusion. Bring your anger. Bring it to God. Don't run from God. Bring it to God honestly. He could handle it. I'm telling you, he could handle it. He welcomes it. God, I'm hurting, I'm confused, I'm afraid. And the last thing I want to do is relinquish control and trust you. But God, just like Peter said, where am I going to go? You are my God, my Holy One. 
You will never die. You have the bread of life. You have the bread of life. I ask you this morning, what's breaking your heart? What's, what's breaking your heart this morning? God says, God says, I want you to share with me the things of this world that's breaking your heart. Do you ever think about this? We serve and worship a God who is familiar with lament because he knows what it's like to have his heart broken again and again and again and again. Lament pushes you into God's presence. He says, bring whatever it is. Don't ignore it. Acknowledge it. Admit it and bring it to me, whether it be fear of the future, whether it be the pain of prolonged singleness, whether it be the burden of caring for aging parents. Lament allows us a safe space in which we can go to God because we know that we are loved and known. God will meet you right where you are. What's breaking your heart this morning? What is breaking your heart this morning? And the last question is, and where do we get the power to lament? Ever wonder, what, why, why are these prayers even in here? You think about that, verse 12. I mean, that's, that's disrespectful. Why, does, why are those prayers in there? Why, why are the prayers of Job in there? Why are these, why are these prayers of David, these, these prayers that are questioning it, why does God continue talking to them? Why doesn't God just smite Habakkuk, smite Job, and smite David? Why does he do that? Derek Hidner, an Old Testament scholar, says, the very presence of such prayers in Scripture is witness to God's understanding. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. So the truth is, God doesn't love you because you exercise self-control. God doesn't love you because you're faithful. God doesn't love you because you never doubt and you never question God. God says, I love you because I love you. It's grace. Grace says, I remain your God, not because you're faithful, because you're not. I remain your God, not because you exercise emotional self-control, because you don't. I remain your God, not because you never doubt and waver, because you and I do all the time. Grace says, I remain your God, because my relationship with you is not based on your performance, but based on my unconditional covenantal love. You so say, how is that possible? That's possible because of the ultimate Habakkuk. The ultimate Habakkuk. That's how grace is possible. What do you mean, Peter? In his second complaint, he says in verse 13, chapter 1, God, your eyes, though God, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. In other words, he's saying, God, God, you can't, you're holy. How, how, how can you put up with injustice? 
God, God, how can you bring salvation from judgment? How can you bring justice from injustice? How can you bring good out of evil? On the cross, those questions are finally answered. On the cross, those questions are finally explained. You see, on the cross, because God is holy, because God is just, because God can't just overlook sin, overlook injustice, overlook evil, because a payment needed to be made, a payment was made. Who paid it? He did. He paid it so that the world that we long for, the world without evil and justice and suffering, so that God can one day end all evil, suffering, and injustice without ending us, so that God can bring salvation out of judgment, and yes, good out of evil. Grace is possible because of the ultimate Habakkuk. In Gethsemane, you see the ultimate Habakkuk, Jesus expressing deep pain and sorrow, crying out, Father, is there any way out of this? If it's possible, what? Let this cup pass from me. And yet, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And yet, trusting in God's promises and surrendering to his will in the moments when it's often the hardest to do. On the cross, the ultimate Habakkuk cries out, where, why, why have you forsaken me? And yet he stayed, and yet he stayed, and yet he stayed. Why is God still faithful when we are faithless? Because he really was forsaken. That's why when you and I say in this time, Lord, where are you? I feel forsaken. I feel abandoned. God, how long, how long? We may feel abandoned, but you're not. Why? Because Jesus was abandoned and forsaken so that you and I will never be. Jesus remained faithful even when the weight of sin, evil, and injustice came upon him. That's why you can trust Trust him. That's why you can surrender to his will in moments when you find it hardest to do. Because Jesus is when you look at my death, you realize that dark times, hard times can come to you. That doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. That doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Dark times can happen to people who don't deserve it. Jesus says, it happened to me. But in all things, I am at work, but in all things, I am at work, but in all circumstances, I am at work to glorify my name, to bring good to you, and to bring salvation to the world. And someday, you will see it. And until then, trust me. Believe in me. Look to me. It's the gospel that enables us to trust him through the disorienting sting of cancer, of unemployment, and injustices. 
and an innocent killing of another black man. Even as we move to fight for justice and reach out to those who are suffering with the love of the one who will wipe every tear from our eyes. It's the gospel that reminds us that I can go to him and lament and grieve and mourn because we follow the one who said, I am deeply grieved even unto death. I want to lead us in a time of, of, of a response. We've done this in these Sundays. Instead of just hearing the word and just going about our day, how do you listen to a word like this and just go about our day? I want to, I want to give us some space to be able to lament, to grieve, and to mourn. What is breaking your heart this morning? Church, what, what is breaking your heart this morning? What, what is it that you and I need to acknowledge and admit before God honestly? What is it that we need to be in God's face about? I just give you some space just to do that. Take a moment right now, just honestly, and acknowledge and admit what's breaking your heart this morning. also isn't just grieving and mourning. It's about trusting his promises and surrendering to his will in moments when it's the hardest to do. That means we come this morning and we remind ourselves, just like Habakkuk, my God, my Holy One, that's who you are. That's who you are. Trusting him declaring his character and his ways. And take a moment to do that this morning. Even in the face, even in the face of suffering, hardship, mourning, and loss, we lean in and we trust.
this morning as we end, I want to read for us Psalm 13, that Psalm of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long, Lord, will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But... I will trust in your unfailing love. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And so I will sing. I will sing. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. I will sing your praise for you have been good to me. For you have been good to me. For you have been good.